most original and creative talent in our business. Would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles? Good evening. This is Orson Welles. The two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, Jello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Uh, welcome to another Orson Welles. Uh, this is actually our final Orson Welles, I guess, uh, for the commentaries anyway. this uh, It's kind of sad that he comes on and talks about how this is the last of the commentaries. and uh, But we'll get into that as we go through. Uh, I have uh, Terry Phillips with us. Hello. Uh, of course. And we've got Vincent Longo over there. Hello. Vincent, thank you for joining us for so many of these episodes. It's been fantastic. And Kathy fuller Seely again. And we have John Henderson back with us. He's been I'm just an of, observer. He's an observer. He, he may, <laughs> if, he, if he wants to, he's more than welcome to. But uh, he's been with us before, so it's great to have him back. And uh, we'll go ahead and get started. I think we'll have uh, Vincent take over for the beginning of this. So, Vincent, why don't you take us through your thoughts? Yeah, so um, as Buck said, Wells is canceled. Um, they've announced his replacement which um, is a baseball, the baseball manager of the um, Brooklyn Dodgers, Leo Duracher, I think is his name. Duracher, thank you. Yes. Um, You know, obviously, certainly less political than Wells, although he was, from my understanding, decently controversial in the game of baseball. He was also instrumental in the integration of baseball with uh, Jackie Robinson. So, um, there are some, you know, perhaps um, uh, political alignments between these two, at least in a little bit. Um, but certainly a baseball manager is far less political than uh, Orson Welles' burning leftism. So we can see a shift for ABC uh, in his slot. Um, but Wells, you know, he is busy. Um, again, he's trying to make films in the UK um, for Alexandra Corda. Um, the latest project that was just announced at this time was an adaptation of Saul, uh, what is it, Saul Lume, um, the biblical adaptation by Oscar Wilde. So he was gearing up to do that. Um, he was gearing up to make the film that would be The Lady from Shanghai. Um, so he's got enough irons in the fire, but he does seem genuinely upset to be leaving everybody um, today. So that, you know, just the way that he presented it, sort of the slow not as quick as before, but at moments he was pretty intense and um, no much more moment was he intense than when he was talking about uh, claims that he was a communist. So that's what I'm going to talk about in a second. I do want to give a couple quick um, backgrounds. So at the beginning of this, he mentions um, a time in which he spent in China, specifically in Peking. Um, And he tells that he's apparent. I I haven't listened to this, Daryl, but he begins his radio broadcast or this series with telling the same story. Is that true? He does. Okay. That's interesting. Um, but anyway, he was in China um, around the age of 15 or 16 after his father died. He had a small inheritance and he was um, under the guardianship um, of what he called Dada Bernstein and Dada Bernstein let him travel. I mean, he went to um, Ireland, uh, which Wells often claims is sort of the beginning of his acting. He sort of joined a theater group um, later, he went to Northern Africa and he went to China. And during this time, he drew constantly because part of which was he was making this um, book of Shakespearean plays called Everybody's Shakespeare, which had a lot of drawings. But Wells was also a habitual uh, doodler. So you have drawings from China of the people that he met. I went back and looked. I didn't see um, this you fellow or his father specifically mentioned in the letter. But it's, you know, it's plausible. I'm, I'm surprised that he would have a pen pal in China uh, for a small period of time. But it, to me, it seemed like the story was more metaphorical, like the choice of you and talking about the United States. He sort of acknowledges that. But I, I don't know about its historical accuracy um, in general. But <clears throat> that is a long, uh, long story to be said. Um, Wells, several times in this radio broadcast, has mentioned his... Um, hatred that he's being called a communist but this is really reaching a four in this episode and he spends basically the last half of it saying listen i'm not a communist and then he explains 
um, you know, the reasons that he has some socialistic beliefs in very pragmatic terms. But this isn't just a general way that he wants to end this. Wells is under fire um, by an organization that he's a part of. So he mentions in this that he's suing um, a newspaper and a particular writer. Um, but I was surprised to learn that the person who charged this against him was actually the vice president of the American Federation of Laborers. And it was published in their um, sort of flagship journal. It was this um, big hit piece essentially about how Hollywood is infiltrated by communists. Um, and he specifically names like four, Edward G. Robinson is one and Orson Welles is another. Um, and he says, you know, it seems to be these really rich cats like feel so bad and they, they're so self-conscious about their bloated um, incomes that they feel the need to be sort of preaching this dogmatic um, Russian uh, origin communism. Um, and so he calls for Wells to stop. And, and he says that we're going to get the rest of the American Federation of Laborers to stop going and seeing your movies. We'll burn, we'll bury you. Um, <clears throat> to me, a couple of things stuck out from that, though. I think, um, you know, labor is under fire here. There's a lot of strikes happening. And so I think this is a really strategic move by the American Federation of Laborers to essentially divert attention away from them because, you know, um, and essentially say like, we're not communists, we don't um, identify with communists and Hollywood is a really easy visible target. And that becomes a problem in the McCarthy era in general with the Red Scare. Um, but I was surprised to see it this early and this early from a labor organization. Um, I don't know this if this lawsuit really went anywhere um, but it certainly fueled Wells's, um, and we could talk more about his explanation of why he's not a communist, but that's the background of why he ends this broadcast with an issue, which he's kind of returned to, but wasn't really the point I think he want, would have really wanted to end on. Right. Right. And, and the part you mentioned about you, um, yes, that is from his first episode and, and that, that most of you guys haven't heard. But uh, Vincent, I think we're going to redo that one. Um, those first, the first ones that I did by myself, I think we're going to revisit them before we completely head off of the commentaries, just because it'd be nice to have uh, as many of us doing the commentaries as we could throughout. I know we won't have Terry for that, but that's okay. Um, also for listeners, Terry's going to take a break here for uh, a month or so and, and be gone. So uh, we hope he has a great time on his vacation and everything, but uh, we'll miss him for sure. He's, he's added so much to these commentaries and so much to just our podcast in general. Uh, anyway, let's, um, the other, the other piece I wanted to mention was just to me, this whole thing of him talking about communism. And then he was talking well, communism is kind of uh, socialism and things and, and uh, how he's not, he believes in some socialistic things and so forth, but not, um, all of them or whatever sort of reminds me of Seinfeld with the whole uh, my cat's climbing up on the screen I'm sorry, trying to get away get away cat uh, <laughs> yeah, anyway uh, about the in Seinfeld where it was the uh, you know how he his character the characters aren't gay not that there's anything wrong with that was the whole you know joke about that and so it's like I'm not communist but you know communists aren't all bad and, and communism and socialism are, you know, are all bad and that sort of thing. And I thought that was an interesting kind of insightful try to steer. He's, he's like trying to tamp down a little bit of all the hysteria, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's for sure. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll flip over to Kathy and get her thoughts on this um, whole thing. What do, you, what do you think, Kathy? Or where well, well, it was just, it was sad. I, I mean, I, I felt great sympathy for uh, Orson because he's saying the program has been taken away from me. Right. And I just, like I said, I, I, I felt bad for him. I was fascinated by his sharp criticism of, of Harry Truman. Uh, what he said, we have a little president, but we are not a little people. So he's really, you know, going the, the Rooseveltian beat down of, of Harry Truman. Um, and, and that's gonna, it's so interesting to say, um, we can't defeat communism, but we compete with them. We can compete with communism, which is short of saying, let's go to war with them. But I, I like how he's sort of splitting the atom here, splitting um, uh, uh, hairs by saying that, that no, um, we should 
be competing, you know, in all these uh, countries undergoing revolution by saying, by uh, uh, pointing up the, the pleasures and benefits of, of uh, you know, capitalism and democracy, uh, uh, you know, rather than just uh, a plain old fighting. So uh, I wanted to ask Vincent, so um, soon after this, so uh, uh, Wells does go to England? So no, he never really goes to England. He starts preparing. Oh, so I mean, making, he does go. He he does go to England, so but like, sorry, go ahead. He does go to England for a very short the, period of time. Okay, so he's making the Corda movies, but in the U.S. Yeah, he's prepping for them, and then he goes to the um, okay. U.K. the The story is that he shoots a little bit of around the world because he was going to adapt that into a um, film as well. That's always a story I've heard. Um, but the Corda movies never um, come into fruition. But the reason, you know, he did oh, sell the right. rights to Around the World to Corda, which is why eventually we get the Michael Todd Academy Award winning version, because Corda will oh. sell the rights to um, Michael Todd, who Michael Todd was involved with Wells's um, uh, stage play version as well. Um, but he quit early on. So it is this sort of strange oh, uh, connection. It's a small world. It's a it's a small yes. world. So um, I just, as I said, I um, I just think a um, uh, uh, sad. I'm, I'm well. I guess I, I'm glad he went back to Hollywood to make more movies rather than sort of escaping to Europe. Um, you know, to try and get away from this of uh, uh, the uh, accusations and his uh, how upset he is with Truman. So um, yeah, he's quite so, upset in Truman on this one. I. I this is probably the most harsh he gets on Truman that I can think of from his, I mean, he's mm -hmm. always been a little harsh on Truman, yeah, but this but, one really cements yeah. it. I, I well, think seemed, so. And it's because it's his last episode. He might as well. You let know, it all hang out. Yeah. Blazing, so. <laughs> I, I think he also sees it as his, um, the way in which he stands out from other liberal commentators, right? He says at the beginning, like even my other liberal friends think I'm way too hard on Truman. And they think that it's going to essentially favor the Republicans who also want to tear down Truman. But he says essentially like he thinks Truman is so bad that he's only going to make it impossible for liberals to be able to um, to back him. And so that's why he uh, supports this continued bashing. But you're right. He gives no um, he doesn't waver on Truman in the same way that he did before. He was always like, oh, he's simple, whatever. But now he just yeah. seems to just constantly call him a little person as as frequently as he can, even when it's not really the point of what he's trying to say. Right. Hmm. Well, and then uh, one other thing I noticed with this episode before I throw it over to Terry uh, was that at the beginning, he gets some things wrong. He mentions something from the uh, yo from the spring and says, no, no, it was actually autumn that I was there and, and things. And uh, I mean, you, and then and there's, um, just a few things that seem a little off at the beginning because he's uh, and it feels like it's just because he's kind of emotionally tied into what he's saying and that he's saying his goodbye in his last episode and things and then he gears up and then it becomes more normalized like what we're expecting from him and maybe even more incendiary and in things than, than usual as well. Uh, Terry what were your thoughts on this? The first thing I want to say is that um, Orson Welles, the one word I would use to describe Orson Welles throughout these commentaries, and maybe more in this one than any other, uh, was nuanced. Uh, Welles was not a black and white guy, as you all have been saying, his views on uh, politics and communism in particular were not simplistic. I mean, some people might have accused him of being naive, and maybe he was, but he certainly had the ability to slice and dice things and not just say, well, it's all good or it's all bad. He makes a, a very um, subtle reference to a historical event that I think 99% of today's um, audience would not know anything about. He talks about the Marco Polo Bridge incident. And this was um, oftentimes referred to as the, the second Sino- um, Sino-Japanese War, uh, second in Japanese invasion of, um, of Manchuria. And the, the occasion for this reference in this particular commentary was the 15th anniversary of the first conflict back in 1931. The, the Marco Polo Bridge incident that he refers to most often 
um, people, the historians would say, uh, took place in July of 1937. But that was actually the second time uh, that um, Japan invaded. And the Marco Polo Bridge, by the way, is very close to what he called, what used to be called Peking, which we now call Beijing. Um, but the uh, the power that Japan had prior to the to the Second World War, prior to Pearl Harbor, was large and growing, and uh, Japan had actually been very um, involved in um, in Chinese affairs long before this, back in the, the late nineteenth century, and so Japan was a growing force. And Wells, of course, is now looking back with the with the benefit of post World War II hindsight. And able to say that uh, this was a, this was a danger that we now commemorate, uh, and and so in a in an odd way again with Wells being nuanced, he was trying to pick his way through um, the, uh, the the power of nations in the Far East. Um, talking about his his. Um, accused um, sympathy with communism. Again, Wells was not black and white about this. He was able to talk about and think about affairs, political affairs that most politicians, most people could not see. It was just all good or all bad. And for Wells, even in his relationship with, with Truman, which varied throughout the years, uh, was not all good and not all bad. Uh, he mentions uh, Henry, his, you know, again, mentions his friend Henry Wallace, who was uh, anti-war, and that was, that was Wells' point of view, of course, too. Um, and I, there was one line that jumped out at me. He said, we're big enough to be kind. And I, I wish that were uh, the philosophy that more people held, too, that we don't have to be uh, cruel in our use of power. And then finally, he uh, refers to the letter to uh, the lady in uh, Weehawken, New Jersey, and uh, I, I think that's that was a good way for him to to wrap up not just this this particular commentary but the whole series. Uh, I want to do one last thing, which is to pull back the curtain a little bit. Uh, most of uh, your listeners will know that we also will talk about in in other um, other recordings, other podcasts. We'll talk about uh, Jack Benny and Jack Benny related uh, programs. And interestingly enough, in this episode that is so much about um, the importance of getting along. Uh, this, this notion of being accused of communism and being punished for accused of being communism ties in very well with something that we all will talk about a little later, which was an episode of the Frank Sinatra show that uh, Jack Benny was on, in which Sinatra does um, a, a song. It's actually a, an excerpt from a, a short film uh, called uh, The House I Live In, and the song is called What America Is to Me. And it was written by the great American playwright, Albert Maltz, who was one of the Hollywood 10. And it's we'll get into this in that other conversation, I'm sure, but it's so much about tolerance and about getting along in the world. And uh, for holding that position, Maltz and uh, nine other American uh, writers, film writers, were severely punished by Congress in this hysteria that we all refer to now uh, in retrospect as the Red Scare. And I'm so glad that we had a, a wonderful voice for this limited run uh, in, the, in the person of Orson Welles, who could, who could pay tribute to the importance of getting along well in the world. So timely today. And Daryl, I'm so glad you brought this uh, forward all these years for us to, uh, to hear and to talk about. He was masterful in delivering that message. And it was too bad that it had to end, but that I know that it had a great impact uh, on, on his listeners and on the country. Yeah, hopefully it'll have a great impact on, and has, and will continue to have a great impact on our listeners that listen to these commentaries. I was very um, struck by the same thing. He really hammered in the point of, we're a big enough country, we have, we have the biggest military in the world, all these things, and we can be kind. We don't have to... Um, and through our kindness, people will know us and things. And I thought that was very well said, um, that whole piece. Um, John, I looked like you had your hand up. Do you, do you have something <laughs> to add to our conversation, well, John? 
<laughs> I just I I don't I'm I have nothing to say about the particular episode which no. I haven't listened to yet. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Yeah. Uh, but I did think it would be nice since this is you know the end to sort of comment about the series as a whole and get your thoughts uh, on the series as well. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I, I haven't been on all the episodes partially because it's a bit political for me. You know, it's interesting to hear the history, but, you know, I just think Orson Welles is a bit of a communist. So, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I, uh, but I, the thing that I really appreciate, especially this being a political commentary show, is how much variety there is. He'll bring in a whole bunch of other elements you know, uh, works of literature that he'll read and he's got a fantastic ability to read in a way that is just engaging and, and is, is terrific. Um, so I was curious what your guys' thoughts are on the whole series. And just a quick question, uh, how old was he at this point? Vincent he was, was in his, so he's born in 1915, so. 31? 31, yep. that's what yep. I thought. Early 30s, yep. yeah. Yeah, and he does a um, marvelous job at 31 to pull this off. Um, I My thoughts on it are just that uh, I, I, I have a hard time getting into like the news at the time and things. I mean, I can somewhat, it's just kind of dry. And so some folks have asked me to bring like news shows forward and things. And so sometimes I have, but I, I find that I lose interest after I present like three or four episodes of, of, of some news program or something. But in his case, he does such a great job of, of making it interesting every week because you never, and Vincent has done just a brilliant job of giving us the background of where Orson's coming from each week. So just knowing the, the emotional uh feelings of, of, of Orson at the time add a lot to it as well. And then on top of that, the fact that he takes on, he'll take on a different subject that he hasn't taken on before or come at it from a different angle. And so even though he repeats a lot of the same subjects, he always does it in an entertaining way. I mean, the guy's an entertainer and he knows how to present things in an entertaining way. And uh, like you said, some of his readings from the Bible have been wonderful. Um, a couple of weeks ago, he read from Moby Dick, and that was fantastic. And so we've, there's a lot of variety to this series that you don't get in a normal, if it was just a straight commentary by someone else necessarily. Um, Terry, what are your kind of overall thoughts about the whole series? Well, as I said, I, th I think it was, a, I mean, I'll use the word, it was a blessing to have Orson Welles uh, give voice to important issues of the day that are still important today, whether it had to do with racism or the economy or, you know, just the importance of getting along with each other. And this, um, I, I laughed when, uh, when John talked about him being a communist, because uh, again, going, referring back to uh, the, the other conversation that we'll have later today, uh, this word was used as a cudgel in a country where we pride ourselves on, or we used to anyway, pride ourselves on having a variety of points of view, of, of uh, having, of being open-minded and uh, supporting each other in, in uh, our rights to express ourselves. But the, we, then we had this very, very dark period in the 1950s where people were punished for having different points of view, whether it was politics or religion or anything else. And Wells was really masterful in, throughout this series in showing us how important it was to hear each other and to, 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 to tolerate each other's differences, not just tolerate, but encourage each other to have different points of view. Um, and, and so that, to me, that was the, the, the thrust of this, this series, even though they were only 15 minutes long, they were just packed with um, a variety of topics and points of view and, and even Wells himself argued with himself over time, you know, right. his, his positions changed mm -hmm. and it was, uh, it was really terrific as somebody who, who uh, uh, indulges in uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the literary arts. I, I was so inspired by these. They were just fantastic. Right. Well, and uh, to dovetail on that and tie it in. And so often the other piece that, that uh, we've talked about a lot is, the, is how much it has uh, 
ramifications or reflections into our current situations we're in. I just heard last week, I think, um, a fairly famous person, uh, respected in some circles and so forth, come out and say that we should have uh, one national religion for our country and that, that we should, uh, if we had that, it would solve like all the problems we have in our country and so forth. And it goes so against everything our country is founded on. It doesn't, it makes, it made absolute, but to have someone now what could possibly go wrong. Need to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I'm like, let's force everyone to follow one religion. That should work out well. <laughs> Historically, that's always worked out really well. Um, sure, anyway, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, Kathy, what, what are your thoughts well, on the series overall? And things? I, I have so appreciated um, um, hearing the episodes every week. Um, uh, because I said, as, as someone who uh, has for a number of years taught uh, uh, an American history overview to a college freshman, um, to pull a, a semester together without being constantly in the weeds of this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened, you really have to fly at a fairly high level over the landscape. And uh, we don't often get that much of a chance to dive into the complexity of what's going on at times. And this is a time when I usually have about half 20 minutes, you know, across a semester to talk about this period. And so it's been absolutely fascinating to do the deep dive, um, to have such an amazing, uh, uh, um, you know, wise young person leading us through this. Um, who can see many sides to the issues, who wants to not only give the news headlines, but so many different kinds of reactions and the letters from his listeners. And so it's been an, it's been an absolute delight, sad, joyful, but especially meaningful because I've never experienced anything like these past couple of years in my life of every day being between COVID and politics and, and violence, and all this, it's been, I think, and a very similar kind of time in which it's very difficult to find hope and joy necessarily. And so I have so, and, and it, it's been so meaningful to me to hear these short takes from Orson that are so deep, that have so many layers. Oftentimes, you know, when, when he can find a way to find sort of joy or a new point of view in an insane time, it's really helped me uh, through uh, what I consider a pretty similarly insane time of, uh, of what we've been going through these past couple of years. So, and I'd also just briefly like to say, you're right, the coming, the way that uh, communism is so vilified uh, is fascinating so quickly. In part, some historians think that it's a, a sort of inevitable uh, emotional carryover from we just spent three, four years hating the Nazis and hating the Japanese enemy and being told by everybody, you can't be of, you know, you can't give them any credit. You can't be sympathetic. They are the total enemy. And they, you know, so much the culture and the military and the leaders had to keep Americans in the war had so played this up and suddenly the war is over. And so some historians talk about there was this feeling this need to hate someone that also kind of spilled into this new enemy of the communists. Uh, and in a way you can sort of see it making sense by the ways that other people are using it as this cultural, as you say, so. Yeah, agreed. Vincent, you wanna give us your take on the whole series? Yeah, if, um, if listeners could see my notes right now that I scribbled down as we started doing this, they would see it's just a complete <laughs> mess. But I think that's in part um, what I loved about doing this is that every time, uh, you know, we were sent the episodes, I really had no idea what we were going to get. And we got a lot. Um, and it ranged from, you know, things that would take five seconds to prepare, you know, such as a, a reading um, from literature or the Bible. And then sometimes I would be spending hours and hours trying to research small things that I had never heard of, um, you know, and so it was really exciting for me. I mean, just as sort of outside of this, but I think the other thing that Wells gives us is such a eloquent um, encapsulation of the events. Um, you know, when Carrie Longmire comes on and he does um, his uh, 
commentaries to fill in for Wells. In some ways, I'm always relieved in the sense of his is much straight, much more straightforward. <laughs> it's much easier to understand. Um, but at the same point, like I also find it, you know, dry and, you know, you're missing. I think what is great about Wells's commentary is that it, there's layers of meaning in his word choices and his metaphors um, and his callbacks to history back and forth and back and forth. I mean, it's really a rich text, which makes um, our job really exciting. And I think why we can spend so much time. But I think the other thing that I, I really um, appreciated about Wells um, has to do with his, you know, sort of his last statement, which is just about kindness. I think a lot of times political commentary now, and it, you know, certainly is true to Wells to a point, is always just this back and forth battle. Who can beat the other one out? And certainly Wells um, is not, uh, he does that on, on at times, but he always tries to root his beliefs in democracy and capitalism mixed in with some socialism here um, to human values, even to the Constitution. He mentions the Constitution a lot. He also mentions, you know, um, just the idea of being kind. He mentions that our job as human beings is, is to support um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And he knows that, or it's his belief anyway, that ideologies um, like communism, specifically the di dictatorial version of it, isn't going to go away from violence and war. Um, you need to do that in his mind with compassion, with peppering in some socialistic ideas, specifically because we have so many resources. But he also mentions, you know, that's the whole reason why we do need to care about um, foreign politics. One thing that Wells is really invested in is because if we don't, the idea of communism, specifically the totalitarian version, is really appealing to people who are enslaved, who are beaten, who have nothing. And so, um, you know, and the core idea behind that is a little bit of kindness, even though in his mind, you know, the full-fledged communism is not true kindness for kindness sake. But Wells says with so many resources, with so much greatness in America, he, you know, the other thing, he's so proudly patriotic in a way that we don't always see. Um, we see with some versions of politics or some sides of um, the political debate, you know, pure nationalism, but he, he's really is patriotic. He says it constantly. Like, I believe in America. I know America can be great, but to do that, we need kindness. And so that's one thing that I think I loved is that these episodes where he rooted his arguments so much in, in ethos and kindness, and that um, connected his thoughts about labor, his thoughts about economics, his thought about racism. Um, and that's what I think kept, you know, keeps his ideas alive in a way that, you know, maybe his, you can take or leave his politics, but his belief in human compassion is something that I will never forget. And I really appreciate that we had um, a year of broadcasts where that was um, on display. And John, the other thing that I think we would all agree on is that in addition to all of these things, Orson Welles was the consummate performer. He made it not just interesting, but gripping. He was yes. just an amazing, amazing performer. Amazing. Agreed. I just, again, makes me so sad that he only did a year of these and that they, they didn't go on. I would love to have had years and years and years of these and, and to talk about and things, but at least we have these. And uh, like I've said before, many times in the podcast, if we would have done this two or three years ago, we would have had 12 episodes and that's it. I mean, now we have all of them. So it's just uh, wonderful that these were preserved somewhere and, and eventually released where we could, uh, where listeners could actually have a, a listen to them. I think it's so much of what old time radio is about and, and, and all the fans of it and all the podcasting that John does that I do and everything is, is about trying to share something that deserves to be shared, that deserves to be heard, that's deserved to for people to listen and and to gain insight into what the past was like, but also insight into our present through that. And it's not just this Orson, but it's everything in old time radio. And the fact that now it's more available than ever before, and that we're constantly trying to dig up, find more uh, episodes of, of various shows and things to bring people, I think is a wonderful thing. And uh, I, I just think it's great that, that, that podcasting exists because I think that's a huge piece that, that puts old time radio out there for people and that we could do these commentaries and talk about them to kind of give them a little more resonance and a little more um, explanation that maybe is necessary to get a modern audience to go, okay, so I, I get that now and I get where, where Orson was heading with that or, and so I, 
I think you guys have been wonderful to have all your insights. Um, every single one of you have been great. Uh, John, any, any last thoughts for you or, or. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I just think I'm looking forward to seeing what is going to happen next. I don't know if you've got plans for Orson Welles for the future, but uh, yeah, I'm going to keep my ears open. Well, and you might uh, want, you want to start or want to join us soon. We're, we're looking at doing uh, at some point, Orson's comedy years when he when he comes after the Jack he's on the Jack Benny show we're going to do those oh yeah sure you'll join us for those and then you can decide whether you're going to join us into his almanac which is his comedy series that he tries after that and uh, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work so well (laughs) it'll be a fun series to talk about and his guests are great he's got Dennis Day on there a few times and things and so he's got some some really fun guests and Lucille Ball stops by and just a a lot of great guests but so we'll we'll be bringing you lots of different things coming up and there's some uh, for listeners some of the first things we're going to bring you is is uh, some of the I really want to dig out some of the things that have never been aired. There are some things that he recorded that for whatever reason, they decided to never release them on radio. So no one heard them back 75 years ago. They just went into a vault somewhere and now we have access to them. So, uh, and some of them are, are like precursors to this commentary. You can tell where the commentary kind of came from. And so that's kind of fun to listen to. So we'll, we'll go back and get some of those things too. But anyway, we'll. Girl, can, I, can I say one thing really sure. quickly? Um, yeah. I just as a closing statement, I you know I wish that these would have went on for a long time, but I do think with everything with Wells, it's unsustainable. I don't think he. I think he would have quit. He would have moved on to another thing if this didn't yes. happen. But I think that's the great thing about Orson Wells. One of um, one, one person once said, Wells burned with such hot intensity, it was like a spotlight. When it was you know when the spotlight was. Um, on him and you, and you were in that spotlight, you just felt so engrossed and so blessed and so happy. And I think we're blessed to have the spotlight been on the uh, American political scene and the world political scene for this time period. Um, but with anything, you know, he, he was ready to move on probably as much as he knew uh, the sponsor wanted him to move on. And so uh, he burned hot. And when he was on, he was on. And sometimes he wasn't there at all. And people had to, um, you know, cover for him. But um, he was ready to move on, I think. And um, as we are ready to move on to the next thing, yeah. as great as this has been. I think so. Exactly. Well said. And with that, we'll present the last Orson Welles episode. Enjoy Orson on these commentaries. Um, go back and listen to all the other commentaries we presented before. If you haven't heard them, they are quite interesting. And we'll see you folks around. Bye. It was fall, early fall. One of those dry, cold, bittersweet days I've never found anywhere except in North China. Exciting weather, autumn in Peking. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen, telling you a story, one I've told you before, over a year ago on one of the first of these broadcasts. This, by the way, is one of the last. It's the last, to be exact. I have 15 more minutes with you as an editorialist, and I'm telling you about a day in early fall in North China on the kind of day makes you look for an excuse to tell yourself that you're in love when just breathing is fun. You know, there aren't many of those days in one average lifetime. That's why I remember this one. I like to tell the story. I didn't fall in love. But on that wonderful spring day, I heard the first cry of a small Chinese citizen saying hello to the world. I saw his father's face at that breathless and beautiful moment. Just exactly then, I decided to be a father myself sometime. I left the Orient soon after that. I was back in the States, back in school, and I read in the papers what happened at the Marco Polo Bridge. The young Chinese father mentioned it in his next letter to me. We're hoping there'll be a prompt end to this unpleasantness, he said. Little Yu has cut his first tooth. Then the letters stopped coming, and the years went by, and one day, I was a father myself just as I determined to be that distant autumn in North China. It was autumn. I said spring a minute ago. I'm a little upset because I'm saying goodbye to you all. Rebecca's mother, you know, had a birthday last week, and that got me to thinking of birthdays and mothers generally, and then about little you specifically, whose birthday, if my calculations aren't all cockeyed, belongs about here on the calendar. Because I've lost his address, and more importantly, because you has lost his address. I'm sending him here with, by radio, a birthday card. Dear you, 
And while no pun is intended, ladies and gentlemen, it really might be you. Dear you, much has happened in the world since you were born. You know what's happened in your part of it. Maybe you haven't had the chance to find out what's been going on over here. Well, since I left your house, we've had a depression and a great president who told us we had nothing to fear but fear itself and whom we believed. We tried to pretend that what was happening in your country was no concern of ours for a while, but then there came a day in December when we found out how wrong we were. After Pearl Harbor, we were in it all the way with you, and as you may have heard, we're still in China, taking sides in China in your country. We won't discuss that matter in a birthday greeting or, or go into that civil war, but these are painful subjects. My purpose, you, is only to cheer you with a word of hope. You have the right to great hopes. So has everybody who is 15 years old today. Even if, like you, they've never lived in all those 15 years through a single day of peace. Happy birthday to you. As you've heard me say, ladies and gentlemen, this is Orson Welles making a kind of valedictory speech on his last 15-minute period and a year of weekly 15-minute periods. Trying to sum up the things I've said in a year of broadcasting, I don't know that I've said much. It's a poor enough distinction, but I really think I was the very first among what are called liberal commentators to make vigorous criticism of Mr. Truman. At a time when his cheerful lack of equipment for his job was generally taken for a kind of humble charm, I had my Sunday pea shooter leveled steadily at the White House and at those boon companions from Missouri who are nowadays most frequently invited to the executive mansion. Good Democrats and liberals, my good friends, begged me to lay off on the grounds that I was contributing to a reactionary and Republican victory. It was my claim that Mr. Truman, before he was done, would make such a victory, such a certainty, that my little storm warnings wouldn't matter. I said that Mr. Truman would outwit his progressive apologists and make apologies impossible. From the start, I said he was reversing the Roosevelt domestic program and foreign policy, that he would inevitably betray organized labor and bring us to the brink of war. I take no pleasure in having been proved fairly right in this appraisal, and I really wish I'd been wrong. You know, I remember when the capital city of our country was remarkable for the good people who were going there. Now it's remarkable for the good people who are going away. I remember when the best and brightest of young men were turning down big salaries to go up to Washington and work for low ones and for the love of serving our American government. I remember an experiment conceived and christened by another president. In the name of political expediency, the new president has scuttled the New Deal. But his and Mr. Roosevelt's political party has not been noticeably strengthened by this effort. Before the peace was prepared for it, Mr. Truman got rid of wartime controls. Mr. Truman has alternately endorsed and repudiated the same political speech. Mr. Truman has nominated a man for a job that wasn't vacant. He has quoted a conversation with a congressman that was never held. After the railroad unions postponed a strike on the strength of Mr. Truman's promise of further concessions from the railroad companies, Mr. Truman went ahead, seized the railroads, broke the strike along with his word, and called on Congress for a draft labor law. Another Truman promise was for a special session of Congress if the present price control law failed to keep prices down where they belong. The law's lousy, your dollar buys you less every day. Matter of fact, there's no real price control, and as a matter of record, there's been no special session of Congress. How about calling one? Mr. Truman says no. Well, you know, there's a point in statecraft where the well-intentioned blunder turns into actual and public evil. Mediocrity can be a menace. In the day of the atom, an American president's mistakes are more than mere American embarrassments. His mistakes are wrongs against his government and its peoples, and against all the peoples of all the governments. You may have read in the papers that I'm suing a paper and also a man, suing them for calling me a communist. While I've still got a radio program in the three or four minutes left to me as a broadcasting editorialist, I'd like to deal with that question. Well, of course, red is the easiest smear in the whole dirty palette of propaganda. If a man's ideas don't suit you, the simplest answer is to claim that he got the ideas from Moscow. That's the way of the witch hunters, the men who, for their own benefit, want to keep things as they are. They find a name to smear on everybody who wants to improve things. The improvements are always called dangerous foreign ideas. 
Tom Jefferson's, uh, Tom Jefferson's ideas, for instance, were supposed to have come from France. The Americans who supported those ideas were called Jacobeans. In the same way Franklin Roosevelt's reforms and Wendell Wilkie's One World Outlook were called communistic. Improvement itself, any kind of improvement, is written down as alien. Well, as a patriotic American, I resent this effort by the reactionaries to hand to the Soviet Union leadership in the democratic cause. Now that the chance to broadcast these opinions of mine has been taken away from me, I'll venture to speak again on my last broadcast, an opinion on this hotly contentious matter of Soviet Russia, an unpopular opinion and one you've heard from me before. It's the fear of Wallace, of course. The conservative world is profoundly shocked at Henry Wallace's radical suggestion that we do not necessarily have to go to war. The liberal world ought to be shocked just as profoundly when one of its spokesmen comes out for a program of hacking up the globe into spheres of influence. My part in all this Wallace hoopla and rowdy has been this single point, and since I'm repeating myself by way of goodbye, might as well repeat my favorite formula for this issue of the red menace. I've said this many, many times before. I hope for the chance to say it again. We cannot fight communism and succeed. We can compete with communism and win that competition. An awful lot of hungry and unhappy people are sharing this earth with us. It isn't much of a share they have, these slaves and semi-slaves. They're beginning to ask for a better portion. Fischinski's hot and hasty eloquence, Gromyko's inexhaustible armory of quibbles, are sometimes merely obstructionist, but mostly a part of an appeal by the Soviet Union to those slave peoples outside of the Soviet Union who are minded to break their chains and want somebody's help to do it. Now, what does Russia really want? Russia, as a nation, wants friendly borders. The only question is how deep the borders are going to be. Russia wants oil and seaports. There's no question that Russia is going to get her oil and her seaports, a sufficiency. Nobody's going to fight a shooting war over that sufficiency. Oil and seaports and friendly borders, a sufficiency, mind you, won't make Russia too big to live with. But mark this, Russia will be too big to live with, much too big, if she ever manages to persuade the undernourished, the diseased, the ill-housed, the freedom-yearning world majority that she speaks exclusively for them. We must offer the benefits and graces and the bread and butter of our democracy, our political capitalistic democracy, our real or imagined democracy, in practical competition with the benefits and graces and the bread and butter of Russia's socialism, Russia's authoritarian socialism, Russia's real or imagined socialism. In that practical competition, if our system doesn't win, then our system is not good enough to fight for. If in that open contest our way of life doesn't become by acclamation the way of the world, then it's not the Russian kind of government that can only prevail by force, it's ours. But of course, we know that to be nonsense. We, we know that ours is not a police state. And why should we use the tactics of the police state in our dealings with neighbor powers? We don't need to bluster and bully. We're the strongest nation the world's ever known. We're so strong, so invincibly, unbeatably strong that we don't need to sacrifice more of our youth to bloody battles in order to prove it. We're so strong, we don't have to fight to get our way. We're so strong, we don't even need to threaten. Our strength is threat enough. We're strong enough to be polite. We tower over the rest of the world in wealth and arms and health and optimism and everything that makes a nation great. We are the giant among nations. We are so very big, we can afford to be kind. We can be kind and get our way, as we must finally for this century at least, if there's a chance for peace. Only big, strong, rich, good America can make the peace and keep it. If there's a chance of war, only big, strong, rich, bad America can make that war. Well, I don't like armies and armaments. Eighty cents, you know, eighty cents out of every one of your tax dollars goes to pay for them. In other words, for war, for the war we've just lived through and the one we're just fixing to fight. I don't like guns. But I'm not one of those mystics who feel that if you've got a lot of guns, you've simply got to chew them off. I don't believe in disarmament because I don't believe it works. I don't believe that by brandishing battleships and atom bombs at the Soviet Union, we can bully the Soviet Union into establish a duplicate of our two-party representative government. I also don't believe that we can check the expansionist tendencies of the Kremlin by scrapping the battleships and distributing the atom bombs like Christmas baskets. I claim we're big enough to be kind, and I don't suggest that we should be so kind that we stop being big. 
I'll say it just once more. We should not fight. We should compete. We should compete because we're bound to win. We're bound to win because we're so big and most importantly, because we've got so much to offer. Now it's just about time to say goodbye. Maybe there's time enough for the letter I wrote the lady from Weehawken on the first of all these broadcasts. She wanted to know why, for heaven's sakes, I was going to be a radio commentator and here's how I remember it or the answers I tried to give her. It may sum up what I've been trying to say, dear madam. There are no colleges for commentators. They just do it because they want to, and they go on doing it if the public doesn't object. I'm old enough to vote, and I can read. Someday that won't be enough to make a man an editorialist, but right now it gets me in. You may find me on an occasional soapbox, but I'll be speaking then in behalf of those notions which were first drafted into our Constitution and our Bill of Rights. As you've just heard, I don't happen to be a communist. I don't believe in suppressing communism by suppressing democracy. I think that encourages communism. An unbroken line of disillusioned Europeans day after day are marching into the Communist Party because we seem to be afraid of our own political principles. Somebody should tell our military governors that we've been having quite some success in most states with those principles at home for quite some time. We're now committed to moral as well as economic leadership in a world struggling out of the dark ages. We must not abandon our responsibilities any more than our fighting men abandoned their guns. The dazzling fact of this American peace calls for the same brave, big spirit which illuminated our part in the battle, the unbudgeted courage that bought the issue of that battle, the most terrible in all time. We have a little president, but we are not a little people. Madam, this is a great moment, the great moment in history. None of us, however humble, however inexperienced, can keep his silence if he can speak at all and live with himself. I hope I haven't preached at you. I've been here to interest you in things that happen to interest me, to start some arguments, maybe to stimulate some conversation. I've tried to keep you amused. I am always, and believe me, very, very sincerely and as ever, your obedient servant. That's the end of the letter to Lady in Weehawken and the end of all my broadcasts, a year of them to you. My thanks to you for listening and for all your letters, and my thanks to ABC for giving me this great opportunity. Until another series, which I hope comes someday, sometime, believe me, friends of the democratic persuasion, I remain as always obediently yours. Take two on the aisle for the premiere of Is It Fact or Fiction? When the show that dares to challenge historical myths bows in this afternoon in just 25 minutes over most of these ABC stations. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.